You are listening to Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about politics and prose, theology theory, hijinks and pranks, and the everything and nothing to come.
right, here we go. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's Camp Cope, Footscray Station. Uh, Queens of Australia. <laughs> that was bass-tastic. Yeah, they have a lead bass player. Well, there you go. Oh, I love them already. Yeah. All right. Given my own uh, history. Predilections. So, that we, uh, dear uh, listener, we are coming to you on this, what is it, the second week of uh, Trump impeachment inquiry, and there's another Democratic debate happening as we speak. But we're not watching because we don't care. We don't care. So. Uh, yes. Um, so, I haven't, I haven't been paying attention to the impeachment because it's a foregone conclusion that it's going nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, except that I... I watched a, like a 30 minute interview with Steve Bannon. Like Vice has this impeachment show called the impeachment show. Um, they interviewed Bannon about why he's so like he, he's, he has like a podcast and a TV show and some other thing all focus on the impeachment. And she's the interviewer is kind of asking her like why he gives a shit that much. If he knows that Trump probably can't be, convicted in the senate um and bannon gave a sort of like you know a field marshal version of like what specifically is happening in congress and how there's been sort of back and forth even among even from mcconnell about whether or not they they can dismiss like at first mcconnell's like we're not even fucking doing it and then he switched to saying well i i guess we have obligated constitutionally mm-hmm. to pursue this blah 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 um and so bannon's argument is basically like tactically for trump like it's important to fight this because there are certain ways that like removal is probably highly almost impossible but there's a enough political damage that can be done to trump in the interim at a again tactical level mm-hmm. uh that it's worth worth it in his view which makes sense from Steve Bannon's point of view. I think, though, you know, in terms of, like, the actual American public, this all has to land pretty flat. Like, the one clip I saw was Jimmy Dore was showing, like, this crazy um, piece of testimony where the Republican rep was questioning this guy who was supposedly the star witness for the Democrats, but who basically overheard somebody say something about somebody else. And that's their burden of proof about what Trump supposedly did. And it it's like, it's a, it's pretty hilarious. Like the guy's literally like, okay, so there's four people. There's, there's six people mentioned in a four person conversation. And like, you didn't talk to any of them basically. And he's like, yep. <laughs> uh, so like this is completely a show trial and one of the like I mean I always I always think it's really useful to listen to Steve Bannon like not cuz I think his obviously his political ideology is dark and fucked up for lots of reasons but in terms of like being able to read the the field I think he's a pretty good mm-hmm. commentator and they got in and it's interesting because I always end up kind of agreeing with his like the arguments they try to push against him or Trump are pretty bad. And he's one of the only people I've seen be able to articulate why on the right, 
Jimmy Dore is able to do it on the left. Um, but he was just talking about how much like political capital was wasted by the Democrats and how this could like completely backfire in a huge way, which is all the more reason why he wants to like nullify the impeachment as much as possible. Um, anyway, I don't know. Maybe yeah, you have more insight. No, I don't have a lot to, to add. I've just been catching bits and pieces of it on the radio here and there, but, um, I know that, so the testimony you're referring to that it's, you know, the, some person heard another guy say something to somebody else, et cetera. That was, that was last week. And the stuff today, again, if you follow the Facebook or NPR headlines or something was, was more, more damaging to the president for better or worse. But I don't, I guess I'm less interested in the specifics of this alleged quid pro quo bribery or whatever. What interests me is the and I, I don't have enough knowledge of history to know the ways in which the Clinton impeachment hearings and the Nixon ones played out. I felt like those were more domestic, but the way in which this one is kind of about it's international in scope in terms of politics and policy, who's spending money where, who's doing what kind of diplomacy and or shadow operations. I feel like that's all being laid out for the public to just digest and sort of consume if they're interested. And it's fascinating on that level in terms of, oh, much like we couldn't pretend that we didn't know it was happening anymore um, when Ed Snowden revealed what he revealed about the CIA and so on. Here, too, now, it's, again, we have these complaints from the left, the Mueller report, on about Russian interference in our elections. This impeachment is about the Americans' interference in European-Ukraine elections. Like, that's basically what the case is being made for and how exactly how we did it, right, and how we do it through these back channels shadow diplomacy and it's it's fascinating that that's being all documented by this the house of representatives for the american public on the ways in which our own government interferes in other people's domestic affairs and i that's for me that's the takeaway and that's kind of much more interesting than the again the the, the cor corruption side of things it's suicidal though right. because like why is this happening like mm -hmm. i assume you correct me if i'm wrong but mm -hmm. i assume that what's happening is the Republicans in the House are using this as a way to try and attack Biden. Um, Correct. Which is amazing because right. their whole the whole premise of this is that Trump was trying to uh, pressure a quid pro quo, whatever um, Ukrainian president to dig up dirt on Biden, which mm -hmm. he, they they know he hasn't. What's the proof? Again, I'll repeat what was said, what I said a couple of few weeks ago when when it looked like when Pelosi had backed off of the impeachment thing completely. So this is like sort of a I guess I was I was right in the moment, but it, it the, the ground shifted and they decided to go forward with this, which I'll get into why that's strategically insane in a moment. But um, the 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 charge is trump you know interfered with russian or ukrainian election or and or tried to directly do a quid pro quo with the ukrainian pm to get dirt on biden it's not true it didn't happen what's the proof that it didn't happen trump wants to testify now that's got to be unprecedented um both for trump and for mm -hmm. an impeachment proceeding mm -hmm. like Bill Clinton obviously testified, but like, and that's what he wasn't even removed from fucking office. And they proved he was lying to Congress under oath is sitting fucking president, which is pretty, that just shows you how difficult it is to convict somebody in the Senate. Unless like Nixon, 
So the reason Nixon resigned is because the day before or whatever, um, he got word that they had the votes to convict him in the Senate. So he didn't want to drag the country through a trial and, mm -hmm. or himself or whatever. Mm -hmm. As Zizek pointed out a year ago, it's uh, like, what did they get Nixon on? They got him on this Watergate break-in, which is a kind of a weird thing to get a president on anyway. Mm -hmm. Like you're breaking, people are supposedly breaking into like, let's take the most paranoid right-wing version of events. They set Nixon up to take him down. Um, but why? And Zizek's claim is what Nixon was going to do. And Chris Hedges makes a similar claim that in the sense that Nixon was the last liberal president because he was the last president who's actually responding to the people in, in a pretty direct way, i.e. ending the war and stuff like that. And as I've pointed out, in, in all insanity, Nixon was pushing for a universal basic income two years running in 69 and 70. And it was the Democrats who killed it because they said it didn't go far enough, which is a pretty astonishing idea in this day and age. Um, not astonishing that the Democrats could be cynical, but they were cynical from they wouldn't be cynical from the opposite direction now. Anyway, Zizek's claim is that the the problem with Nixon was he was too dangerous to state and capital in the sense that like he was trying to mess with our imperial or imperial ambitions in certain ways, not just by ending the war, but like he was trying to change things uh, in a way that capital couldn't sustain, couldn't uh, allow, couldn't mm -hmm. stomach. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Nixon, uh, as opposed to, you know, whoever followed and everybody else, Nixon was the one who got kicked out of office, not even Jimmy Carter or mm -hmm. um, like, you know, Reagan or and on and on. So like, the i i still suspect that that's kind of what's going on with this with trump like i've been saying since the beginning we should like not be blind to the most obvious facts of like they've been accusing trump of being a de facto communist agent mm -hmm. since before he took office the he's a russian agent blah blah well what does russian agent mean in the american imaginary it means a communist um and I still think that that's what's going on. So like as as pointed as I pointed out before, why are they going after him for this least impeachable offense that he didn't even literally didn't even do because he went after one of them? Because he went after an son of an elite. Because um like I really think it's less about going after Biden than the fact that he went after Hunter Biden publicly. Mm -hmm. Um and the and again Trump doesn't want to give us his fucking tax returns, but he wants to testify in front of Congress. That should tell everybody exactly how full of shit uh, the Democrats bringing these charges on these grounds are. As has been pointed out by everybody, you know, many times on the left, you, there's so much impeachable shit that he's done. But they'd take the least impeachable thing because that's the only thing that directly was a shot at establishment elites directly. Um. And this is going to run aground in a really bad way. So why is this so strategically bad on the Hill? Uh, or what is the rise, or the rising, the, the K crystal ball show on the Hill? Uh, yes, that's a real name. Uh, <laughs> they were talking about how 
one of the what what might happen here is and I mentioned this, you know, weeks ago that this puts all the power in the hands of Mitch McConnell because the Senate does not have a fixed impeachment proceeding. They literally make the rules up and the legalities up on the spot as as they see fit. So the Democrats have handed Mitch McConnell, you know, a fucking 50 millimeter uh, rifle to just like take that take out to use as he see fit he sees fit you know he again he can dismiss it he cannot dismiss it he can trump up the charges he can make it a referendum on the democrats and on the house of representatives he can make it a referendum on the impeachment and process itself he can make it a referendum on the constitutionality of all this but what may happen is people are suggesting that the i maybe it wasn't on the rising but somewhere i was reading at least that Basically, part of the strategy might be to drag, like, if they finish in the House by Christmas or whatever, what the Republicans might do is stave it off and wait until the Iowa caucus right. to completely fuck over all the senators running for president, including Warren, Sanders, etc., um, because they were planning to just sort of jump on a plane at the end of the proceedings when they expected them to end in early February or whatever and go to Iowa for a last dash. Well, they might not be able to do that. Right. Um, so, and we should not be surprised. Mitch McConnell is a Mitch McConnell's an anarchist, like in the, in the most reactionary sense of the term, Mitch McConnell gives no fucks about the constitution. Um, this is an argument I was making when Obama was still president. Like, that whole thing about not even holding hearings about um, Supreme, Court yeah. no, Supreme Court nominees, mm-hmm. that is literally unconstitutional because it, it suspends the separation of powers directly. Like the rule of law does not work if you do that. And this is just left uh, – this is just written off as political maneuvering. No, I'm sorry. What this does is it nullifies the Constitution. And – if you do that long enough and hard enough, you end up with um, you end up with a situation where like Trump is probably at war at some level with the Senate in this very direct way where Trump, I'm sure, is taking Cheney's, you know, unitary uh, interpretation of the executive, meaning I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm the president. And that's there's a convoluted constitutional argument that's made as the legal basis for that, that Dick Cheney initiated and Obama ran with um, versus, you know, McConnell's just like ruthless power games. So like the, except that what's more terrifying is the Democrats going along with this and going, you know, lobbying for it, doing all the work of bringing it about McConnell. Now you're putting him in a position where he controls all the levers of power constitutionally. So like McConnell fucking around with the impeachment trial is not unconstitutional. It's like even Hamilton had said, this is not a legal proceeding. This will be a political proceeding that will divide the country (laughs) in the fucking Federalist Papers. Okay. So in the in the 18th century we knew that this is a shit show 
And now the Democrats have decided to hand all the, you know, the lever, all the leverage in the election in the early part of the election over to Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, and that I should say it'll fuck over the entire caucus because like, it's not enough to, it's not like this helps Joe Biden. Joe Biden has to be in DC attending to this as well, to whatever degree, you know, decorum dictates. So like all this is going to do is just sort of like, throw a grenade into the the democratic primary process um so anyway no sure no um i don't disagree i've just i know we talked about it before and others have too the degree to which this impeachment thing and um the attack on on hunter biden and so on the way in which that might hurt joe biden and thus ultimately helping Bernie Sanders, and I wonder if something similar is true. If this drags on, I don't disagree that it's going to really be hard for those senators. But if I think if anyone is able to get around that, it might be Sanders, given his quote unquote independence. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so I wonder too if uh, you've already sort of brought up the point. It's almost as if the Democrats sort of uh, unintentionally are are trying to help Sanders out with this. And maybe they don't know they're doing it. Maybe they do. Maybe it's a conspiracy. Who knows? But it's, I mean, that, that in my head, I can't help but see that as the outcome ultimately. Right. Um, And that's fascinating. And again, it's strange and I didn't expect it, but it's, 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 uh, it's hopeful in some ways. Yeah, I agree with, I, 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 that's a good point. Like Matt was talking about this on Chapo. Like he was talking about like the game theory of, what's going on in the primaries. And he was saying that, so there's like two, there's two kind of like interest groups or sets of interests in play on the DNC side. Like Sanders is a nightmare Mm -hmm. and he will, he is the end of their, the jig will be up if he gets nominated and elected. So the DNC proper Pelosi and company, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, all those motherfuckers, they, Sanders is like killing, taking Sanders out is their number one priority. But at the individual level of the candidates, they have their own individualistic, um, uh, like sets of motivations. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they all want to be president or at least, um, continue to be a nominee for as long as possible because there's not really a downside for them. Right. It, it only, uh, bolsters their, profile and shit Mm -hmm. so that's why like and they were saying this on chapo like you have like deval patrick joining the race and michael bloomberg Mm -hmm. and like immediately it's just sort of like ridiculous Mm -hmm. but it's the same what chapo what they're saying on chapo is the same reason i'm saying please hillary clinton run do it for the left do it for us because she's only going to peel votes off of sanders opponents and all these other idiots who are like um like they were talking about how like Felix was saying, like, these are people who want it to be 2009 again. So Deval Patrick is like a combination of Mitt Romney and because he worked at Bain Capital and Obama. <laughs> sure. So like if you, you know, his probably idea for why he's appealing is we can pretend it's 2012 again. Right. Um, obviously, this isn't play anywhere. Like nobody gives a fuck about Deval Patrick. Nobody gives a shit about Michael Bloomberg. Um, or Michael Bennett, or like John Stestack, or <laughs> dude from Montana. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Who's that guy? Stisak is, I Bullock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, take your... I mean, who can even name these people? But um, they all... The net effect of, like, the like the opposed sets of desires from the DNC proper and the candidates themselves means that Bernie just... He... Um, Bernie always benefit. The more people you put in there, it doesn't matter who they are. Mm-hmm. The more people you put in there, the more he's helped. Because even if you put left wing people in, and that's not going to happen anymore. We're past that. But like mm-hmm. an argument I was making on a previous episode about like Tulsi needs to start p- hitting harder at going more to the left. Mm-hmm. That will only help Bernie. She needs to understand that she's on Bernie's team rather than like basically pretending that she has a chance to be the nominee. Um, And Yang is like, we've already, you know, talked about like Yang's the only other one running for president so far. Um, Everyone else is running for something else, you know, secretary of state, defense attorney general, blah, blah, blah. Um, But like, there needs to be sort of like a tacit unification on the left of the, of the democratic candidates. And then that will just scare the more that happens, the more Tulsi's profile will be bolstered and Yang's, et cetera. Um, and that's probably what Marianne should have been doing largely mm-hmm. anyway. And she would still kind of be kicking around more so, but like that will scare the establishment into throwing more people at Bernie and it's going to backfire worse. So right. like the, I I'm saying you're hundred percent right. Um, and it's counterintuitive, but it's because they're so cynical and bad at this right. and have already since 2016 lost control of their party because of Ber- the rise of Bernie, that this will continue to happen. Um, it's interesting that Biden's collapsing, not because that's a surprise to anyone watching any of this shit, but like because that sh- he should be the guy that they kind of can't mm-hmm. get rid of. Right. But he is. Right. He's being gotten rid of. So maybe that should bring us to Pete Buttigieg. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of the CIA. Yeah. So um, I won't go through the articles, but because they covered it better than we could here on Chapo already. But like this, the crazy revelation that Pete Buttigieg worked for McKinsey, which is like this shadowy firm, mm-hmm. probably government contractors. Like even what he describes doing sounds like he was in the fucking CIA. Uh, including like mentioning in his autobiography, like he can't describe his exact uh, what he did at McKinsey because of an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Um, yet when he sort of references it in general, he's talking about like doing economic development and like talking to villagers. And then he's like, whether I'm in a village talking to the townspeople, whether I'm at a safe house, whether I'm at, just sort of rolling over this, like, wait, hold on a safe house. You're either in the Al Qaeda or you're in the CIA. <laughs> so it's probably that you were in the CIA, which begs the question, is he still in the CIA? We don't know. What we do know is that the Democratic Party in the East Coast ran and got elected. I think they got some of them got elected openly admitted ex CIA operatives. Um, and so, like, you know, as Matt was saying on Chapo, like, like, if it's true, if the QAnon people are right and there's a war going on between Trump and the deep state and the CIA, the CIA is just cut out the middleman. Let's not go to war with the <laughs> right. president. Let's right. just put our own guy in there. Right. 
um, which is sort of like a ridiculous notion, but is probably kind of true. Um, and the like, which as Matt pointed out, if, if that's, that would explain these insane polls showing Buttigieg Sanders going from winning and steadily like either at the top or number two or three and gaining all this ground to Pete Buttigieg exploding out of nowhere, somewhere take somehow taking a 10 point lead in New Hampshire. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> Iowa thing is crazy enough where they right. said he's up. He has 20, he's pulling at 24%. I mean, among who like mm. the Pete Buttigieg grandmas of America, like that's, it doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Uh, like I, it's, these polls are f- obviously fake. Like there's, you know, like I was talking about off mic to even find the data set, you have to click mm. through a couple links and dig a little, and then you find out, Oh, it's 500 telephone interviews. Uh, what does that mean? Right. Um, probably means landlines. It probably means, and they're probably counting <laughs> numbers. They called that nobody answered as having picked up. That would be my guess. If I could just interrupt for a second too, I'd only point out too to that point about polling um, Kaiser Family Foundation just put out another of their sort of ongoing Medicare for all, um, I guess, polling numbers or public option or whatever, including a series of questions. Not only do you support Medicare for all, do you support a public option amongst independents, Republicans, Democrats? And still, despite all the attacks we've seen of that sort of issue and attacks of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren over the last month or two, um, and the, quote, surge of a guy who doesn't want Medicare for all, that issue is a majority of respondents want that in this country. Um, and that includes independents, Democrats especially. And then they're one of the questions in the poll is, so who do you support to deal with health care? And obviously Bernie's the number one guy. It's Bernie mm-hmm. um, at, quite at the top. And so would I, I bring that up to just point out the fact that these other polls that tend to have more history and reliability show, again, this issue, Medicare for All, and a Bernie Sanders candidate still polling incredibly well and a Buttigieg not. So what is this New Hampshire one? What is this um, Iowa one? Where are they coming from? And it's it's not entirely clear. And it just seems weird and sort of fixed. Yeah. And so the answer is the CIA <laughs> or the McKinsey group. Like, sure. I mean, obviously, like, obviously, I well, I'm not saying, I doubt you're saying, like, I'm not saying that literally the CIA just faked a poll. No. Right. But... Um, polls are very malleable, especially in a, in an extremely fluid situation like we're in right now in Iowa, for example. Um, but there's just no, and to your point, like there's no historical precedent for Bernie, not just crushing everyone in New Hampshire. He crushed everyone in 2016 when he's being ignored completely by the media. Um, but I'd like to, to this end kind of point out like the... This can kind of transition us into talking about the some of the problems on the left with regard to this directly, but also like, okay, well, so Adolf Reed Jr., who's like a longtime committed socialist, communist, whatever, uh, intellectual, really good, everybody should read his stuff, um, out of University of Pennsylvania, he was on The Rising talking to Crystal Ball, and he was saying that he was like, the establishment will kill Bernie Sanders before they let him be president. He's like, I know that sounds extreme, but like, that's sort of like what the stakes are. And I, I pointed that out to some people, some comrades. And one of, one of whom was like, that's a little alarmist, but it's not impossible. And I was like, why is that alarmist? He's like, well, cause it will cause riots. And I was like, they killed Bobby Kennedy in 68, which caused riots at the DNC. Um, 
Now I don't blame my friend. He's Canadian. You know, like we don't, we don't, the way we deal with political disruption is by killing people in America. We don't show them instructional videos and stuff um, or whatever they do in Canada. Conversation. Yeah. Uh, We don't take them out for brunch or whatever they do in Canada. I don't know. It's a foreign country. I don't, you know, they're, they're on our border. They're a threat to us um, existentially as well as politically (laughs) and economically. Uh, Anyway. So, um, I think that that the fact that you have serious people saying shit like that now means that Bernie has actually become a threat. And so and Adolf Reed Jr. is pointing out as well that like what was this what's the best strategy to deal with a real serious threat is just ignore him, which is they've begun doing that again with mm-hmm. Sanders, right. as we've talked about. Um, all this to me is a good sign. Like, I don't. It's not a it's not a good situation, obviously. Bernie Sanders gets assassinated. But if he's become that much of a threat, uh that means things things are truly unstable now. And I think that that's kind of transparently obvious given like the coverage of like the craziness we've talked about, like how Sanders like goes ahead in the polls or make raise the most money, has the biggest rallies. And they're like, Oh, this means he should drop out. Um, like that's obviously just like last, that's just the death rattle of the establishment mm-hmm. attempts to try and get rid of him, which it's not going to work. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to report that my prediction that Bernie with the, with the squad's endorsement, I was calling them the gang. I like the gang better, but it's the squad, I guess. Um, the, with the squad's endorsement, Bernie buttoned this thing up. I'm happy to report that I was right, that it, since AOC's been going to Iowa with Bernie, Iowa fucking loves AOC, uh, which kind of puts to bed any crazy, like, fake... Like, it's really fascinating to me that, like, as I think about it, Fox News is never like, oh, these crazy city dwelling ideas don't play with rural America. They just, they attack them on the grounds of like, these people are crazy, but the idea that you can't, that rural voters won't respond to AOC. That's a democratic talking point Mm -hmm. and it's bullshit. And we have proof that it's bullshit, which is a kind of an argument. The, the defense you were raising of uh, Ilhan Omar in Minnesota as like, a th- as like like good news for Bernie be- that she was elected in Minnesota, which is true. Now we see that like AOC, who has no ties to Iowa, no ties to rural America, um, is by all accounts a cosmopolitan liberal, at least if mm-hmm. not a socialist communist. You know, at the most, Iowa fucking loves her. Why? Because her ideas are good. That's why. And so, like, this really is. This is beyond. I think this is. I think things were out of control for the DNC and the political establishment in general in 2016. Obviously, Trump got elected, but and Bernie rose to prominence. But like now, it's way over the line. Like they, I don't think they can get it back. Like, and even if they steal it from Bernie, which is what my Canadian friend was saying. Like, I just think they'll wed, you know. Put, throw a centrist at him and try to steal it. Okay, they're going to try, but I don't think that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, like Cenk Uger was saying, he was at the California Democratic Convention 
And he said it was like 80% Bernie people there. The most powerful, biggest Democratic state party in the country. It's all Bernie people. Unless they change the rules to literally not let anyone vote in the fucking primary. Bernie is probably unstoppable at this point. And so, like, thankfully, Liz Warren backed off of Medicare for All openly, which just then tanked her whole fucking campaign. She's going to go Kamala Harris style, like, burning in flames, probably. Um, We all predicted. We're we're missing it right now. (laughs) Probably. Um, we, we, pred- I, sus- I assume we predicted this would happen. Um, we were talking about how Liz Warren like went back and forth between, oh, I'm not, she, she accepted, she said, I'm not going to accept a big money that she goes and accepts all this big money. And she's like, I'm not going to accept big money. So, which is kind of like, if nobody's paying attention, a sort of refined position, like you keep, you go do it and then say, you're not going to do it anymore and then go do it and say, you're not going to do it anymore. But, um, the fact that she was a fucking Republican until whatever, 96, um, as others have pointed out, she didn't stop being a Republican. The Democrats just moved to the right. Uh, Jimmy Dore, I think pointed that out. Like, and so now she can't even make it to fucking Iowa before she backs off of M4A. Okay, you just burnt all your credi- fake credibility with people who are sort of nominally paying attention for the reasons our interlocutor points out that Bernie's still the best guy for healthcare and everybody knows it and everybody wants M4A. So, like, that helps Bernie. Mm-hmm. Because now Liz Warren is just in another all, with those other pack of wolves. Like I think somebody pointed out, Kamala what killed what truly killed Kamala Harris was that she backtracked on M4A. She said she'd do it, then she backed off. Now she's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to like shrink her fucking New Hampshire office. She had to fire staffers because she doesn't have any money because nobody gives a fine fuck about her because um, she's not offering anything. So if Liz Warren gets like Liz Warren is on her way to becoming less palatable than Joe Biden, which is uh, that's game over for any real opposition to Bernie. So I don't, again, to your point, I don't know why they're doing all this shit to help Bernie, but they are <laughs> like, right. and I think you're, it's a good point about like, it will help Bernie if the, if the impeachment trial bleeds over into the Iowa caucus in the sense only that like, Bernie's position on Trump is totally clear and transparent. He doesn't have to go whip votes to try and get him convicted because he doesn't. He said, I think there's a video of him in 2015 or 16. Must have been 16 because it must have been after he's elected. After Trump was elected. Basically, that impeachment's a waste of time and it burns all your political capital. Now, he's since backtracked on that just because he probably has to. But... The point being, like, he knows it's a farce and he knows that it doesn't matter. So he doesn't have to be there um, in the same way that uh, Amy Klobuchar probably does or um, what other senators are running. Warren. Warren probably really has to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, go ahead. And the point that I was going to or that I was referencing too is a fact that didn't bernie also register as an independent insofar as then as the dnc sort of collapses and those candidates sort of fall apart with this impeachment he can just run as an independent still and garner whatever percent 
as a senator, you mean, or just as president? I thought it was as I don't know. Was it senator or presidential candidate? He was well he's, registering. Oh yeah, yeah. He registered as both. I think. Okay. Like, and he's said already. So he had, in order to run as a Democrat, he had to pledge support for the whatever DNC nominee. But he also registered as an independent <laughs> right. as well. And he's also said, if if I'm not the Democratic nominee, that is not necessarily the end of my campaign. Right. So he's signaling, which was what he fucking should have done in 16, but he's signaling that um, there's no guarantee that he's not going to go rogue as he should and he'll fucking win i mean like game it out mm-hmm. if your t- options are trump joe biden and bernie sanders or warren uh sanders warren sanders and trump then sanders can attack everyone trump can't trump won't de- fucking <laughs> won't debate bernie we already know that um and so when he's forced to, it's going to be a nightmare. He might not even show up to the fucking debates, <laughs> which is fine. Give Bernie an hour on CNN or whatever the fuck. Um, but uh, oh, I just got a text from Bernie's uh, campaign. Bernie is on, in all caps, fire right now. Make a donation, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he's probably doing what I was hoping he was doing, which is just like, you know, rods from God hammering Warren. <laughs> obliterating rod we trust (laughs) um so right uh to your point then bernie can go rogue and should go rogue and if if it comes down to it i think there might well the what i would say next is like even even more speculative but like at what point and maybe it just never happens and there's no there's no sense that it would 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 happen but i was just thinking like what if the dnc finally decides that bernie is just there he's inevitable then what do they do it's hard to say um that i guess that's sort of opaque to me and i'd have to think about it but like if that happens that won't happen until that won't happen until the week of the convention Mm -hmm. if that so it probably doesn't even matter Hmm. well so um I forget where we were, we were even at. We went. We started with um, impeachment. There's a debate happening right now. We don't have to talk about it. Um, CIA, Buttigieg, and you were going to say Bolivia or something too? Yeah, so like I kind of want to talk about how – well, first of all, there's a coup in Bolivia, as everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Now, the left scarily was – decided to start attacking Morales – like I there's a there's a Facebook group called Ultras versus Tankies. So ultra leftists what are called quote left Marxists or Orthodox Marxists versus Marxist Leninists. Um both are generally insane and uh not really worth taking seriously. It's it, or it's hard to take them seriously given what they often pitch as like an idea. Like basically the Marxist Leninists generally pitch like unreconstructed Stalinism and sort of armed struggle in any, every situation, which has very little to do with Marx or Lenin, but that's, you know, what they call themselves. The ultra leftists are more like tend, tend toward, I call it, they're just crypto anarchists to me. They're anarchists who read Marx um, because any attempt at party formation, any attempt at real, like even like, productive reformism they attack as like reactionary and revisionist and bullshit and authoritarian generally 
I'm drawing a caricature, but I, you know, I defy people to really kind of nullify that. It's pretty much how, how it goes. And so like it, there's like an ultras versus tankies group where they argue with each other. I don't not participate in these debates, but like there was some talk about how Morales is like homophobic and how he, because he was making statements about how the, the chickens in Bolivia have so many hormones that it like fucks up men's hormones because they have so much estrogen and antibiotics. Now to our delicate, like, you know, liberal cosmopolitan ears, this sounds really reactionary, but like I'm in a peasant country where you're talking to people who are uneducated and have different traditions and different understandings of sexuality and are indigenous. Like I, I would, you know, I would defy people to like, it's racist. And here's why it's racist because if you, and, and I can't speak generally, but like, if you really get down to the nitty gritty of like how indigenous tribes are structured and organized, even in the U S it would, it would horrify some, you know, uh, whatever social justice warrior type liberals who would see this as really regressive and reactionary because it's hierarchical and it's based on age and all this stuff. Uh, I'm talking the internal workings of certain uh, indigenous tribes. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either you say that they have sovereignty and self-determination and they've decided that that's how they interpret their own tradition and let that happen. Or you say that they're whatever, um, reactionary. And so like, and perhaps homophobic in some cases, I don't know about the U S but I'm just saying with the Bolivian example, um, which just proves that like, so number one, that's a racist claim to like, attack Ch uh, Morales with point two. I've fucking been to Bolivia. I've eaten Bolivian chickens and they are truly horrifying. It's like a bad Chinese sci-fi novel. Like they are, the, some of them are the size of turkeys. Like in, in Argentina, when me and my buddy would eat, uh, Argentina has a wonderful sort of open pit barbecue, like tradition of restaurants and stuff. And it's wonderful. Um, we could eat probably a chicken, amongst us because they're just normal sized chickens. Uh, we go to Bolivia. Sometimes we'd order half a chicken and it's so big. It's like a fucking Turkey. We'd have to give it away to like people on the street because we couldn't eat it all. Uh, I couldn't eat chicken for like a year after that. Cause I was so grossed out by it after being in Bolivia. And so what I'm saying is like Morales is literally right. They literally are being fucking poisoned. Whether or not it affects people's manhood or testosterone levels, obviously like, we should be critical of that, but like, this is their takedown argument for Morales on leftist grounds. And it's like, oh, I see. And then I saw another argument where someone was claiming like, so like during the coup, the trade unionist organization, um, the sort of CIO of the old CIO of Bolivia, they were openly threatening the, the interim government saying, you have 48 hours to vacate the presidential palace in the congressional building or whatever in the Capitol. If you don't, you're responsible for what happens next. So they're threatening to basically drag them out, you know, and perhaps kill them or at least by force retake the government. Um, 
And then these ultra, some ultra was saying like, there's no dual power in Bolivia, meaning the idea of like controlling both the government and the, the, um, grassroots and then using the grassroots to put pressure on the government, everything that happened in Bolivia, accusing Morales effectively of being an authoritarian and like being a, a handmaiden for capital and nothing can, ha nothing revolutionary can happen via governmental reforms, except, you know, the inconvenient fact that apparently they do have dual power. <laughs> if the whole trade union movement is, is unif basically unified behind uh, the Morales government, the MAS, the movement for socialism. Uh, point two. So the fact that Morales reduced extreme poverty from 35 to 17% in 10 years is not is not like, is not leftist enough. Like it's just blackout drunk, retarded, crazy bullshit. And this is what passes for the left. And I'm like, this is literally, these are, again, we're back to CIA talking points bandied about as like sort of ultra edgy leftist radical fringe positions. They're not. They're, they're bullshit because what's the alternative? We know the alternative. The right wing rises up and by brutal force overthrows the government that had actually improved the lot of the vast majority of uh, Bolivians. So... Now, here's the worst part. This is the most cynical element of this. The, uh, the, 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 the argument the ultras would make, and probably the tankies, would be that they're called tankies because of like Stalin rolling tanks into places as a solution to political problems or whatever. <laughs> sure. um, and that's the joke is uh, that that's like their solution to everything uh, in the current moment, which is obviously fucking stupid and silly. Um, okay. So first I want to, so the, the claim is that um, the problem in Bolivia is they're not radical enough. They don't have a unified workers movement that's independent of the government and the state. And that making deals with state power and participating in parliamentarism, parliamentarianism is the problem, which means de facto, and they'd never... Ultras would never take, like, they wouldn't commit to a position about, like, well, what the fuck are you supposed to do? They would just cop that out. But let's say that they did. And let's assume that it would be orthodox Marxist. And let's assume that that would sort of move itself into a kind of Marxist-Leninism at the level of guerrilla warfare, Che Guevara, you know, and, and Castro taking over Cuba and all that type of shit. So this is, this is from the Wikipedia of... Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia, basically the, the intellectual architect of the Bolivian policies. Okay. So this is, this is from the subcategory political career. In the early 1990s, Garcia Linera was the leader of the Tupac Qatari guerrilla army. In 1992, he was accused of armed uprising and arrested along with several other insurgents. He was released in 1997. So... He already fucking tried that. They literally did the thing that all these ultras and all of these tankies claim is the thing you have to do to take power. He fucking did it already. None of these people have done it. None of them are serious. This is all cosplaying, LARPing bullshit. Um, Lanera literally did it and it did not fucking work. So then... He started engaging in the hard work of actually organizing a party and all this stuff. 
So I just, I just want to stress that like whatever tanky ultra argument one can try and make for like what, what is to be done? He already fucking did it and he already paid the price and found out that it doesn't work. It doesn't play. And it's not, I mean, or even their own exam. Actually, there's another reason they're empirically wrong. Che tried to do the same thing in Bolivia and got clapped by the CIA. Mm -hmm. So like, there's lots of reasons to argue against armed struggle in our current moment. But in Bolivia, we have two pristine examples of how it doesn't work. And so the Linera then was elected vice president uh, with Morales in 2005. Um, he's, he's for nationalization of the carbon hydrocarbon industry. Uh, I, I won't read all this, but basically like Linera is on, on our side on the left. Like nobody can really argue against that. Um, and so this is something Linera wrote in Jacobin the other day about the situation in Bolivia. Um, the military coup that overthrew our government was a revenge against indigenous Bolivians by Alvaro Garcia Linera, translated by Todd Christian. Um, one week after being ousted by the military, Bolivian vice president Linera writes that the force behind the coup against Morales was elite revenge, stealing power back from the poor and indigenous Bolivians who benefited the most from his presidency. Like a thick fog in the, like a thick night fog, hatred, ra- hatred rages through the neighborhoods of Bolivia's traditional urban middle classes. Their eyes are brimming, brimming with anger. They don't shout, they spit. They don't make appeals, they impose their will. Their chants are neither hopeful nor fraternal, but they ring with discrimination and contempt for Indios, indigenous Bolivians. They mount their motorcycles and saddle up in their SUVs, band together with their buddies from the fraternities and private universities, and set off hunting for the rebellious Indios who dared to snatch power from their hands. In Santa Cruz, a traditional center of white conservative and pro-corporate, quote, civic opposition to Morales, they organize hordes of four-by-fours armed with clubs to scare the indios who live in the poorest neighborhoods and the markets, those whom they call colas. They shout that you have to kill the colas and if, or coyas, if they come across a woman in indigenous dress, they beat her, they threaten her, and they tell her to get out. In Cochabamba, they organized convoys to enforce their racial supremacy in the south of the city, home to the poor classes. They charge like a cavalry unit into the thousands of defenseless peasant women who march for peace. They carry baseball bats, chains, gas grenades. Some brandish firearms. Women are their favorite victims. They grab the mayor of a rural town. They humiliate her, drag her down the street, hit her, urinate on her. When she falls on the ground, they cut her hair. They threaten to lynch her. And when they realize they're being filmed, they cover her in red paint, a symbol of what they will do with her blood in La Paz. They're suspicious of their servants and do not speak when they bring food to the table. Deep down, they fear them, but they also despise them. Later, they go out to the streets to shout, they insult Evo and with him, uh, all the Indios who dared to build a cross-cultural democracy based on equality. When they gather in a crowd, they drag the Wafala, the indigenous flag through the dirt. They spit on it, stamp on it, tear it, burn it. They unleash their rage against the symbol of the Indios, who they like to wipe off the earth, along with those who recognize themselves in the symbol of indigenous dignity. Racial hatred is the political language 
of the traditional middle class in Bolivia. All their academic degrees, travels abroad, and religious faith count for nothing. In the end, everything pales before their ancestry. Deep down, they, their imagined lineage is stronger. This obsession oozes from their racist language, their visceral, visceral gestures, and their corrupted morals. All of this exploded on Sunday, October 20th, when Evo Morales won the presidential elections, coming in more than 10% percentage points ahead of the second place finisher however the margin of victory was not so great as it was in the past and evo's vote fell below 51 percent so just to i'm this is me interjecting just to clarify the oas the canadian like fucking cia arm or whatever who um who bolivia said was allowed to kind of decide whether their election was valid the oas even said it was valid because the ruling party evo's party won by more than 10 percentage points. So they had basically a landslide. However, they didn't make it above 51%. That's what Lanier is talking about. So back to the article. But that was, not, that was enough of a signal for the regressive forces waiting to oust him. From the time timid liberal opposition candidate to the ultra-conservative political forces, the OAS to the OAS, to the in, ineffable traditional middle class. Evo had won again, but he no longer had 60% of the electorate with him like before. He was weaker, and it was time for them to move against him. The losing candidate refused to recognize defeat. The OAS spoke of, quote, clean elections but a diminished victory and called for a second round of voting. The OAS's proposal contradicted the Constitution, which states that if a candidate has... Okay, my bad. Which states that if a candidate has more than 40% of the votes... In, a lead greater than 10% over the second place candidate than the leading candidate is elected. Okay. So I was wrong. Um, the, it, the, their election was constitutional, but the OAS is calling for, they're saying the election was clean, but they want a second round based on their own bullshit, which is unconstitutional in Bolivia. Back to the article and the middle class threw itself into the hunt for Indios on the night of Monday, October 21, five of the nine, the election authorities' offices were burned, including ballot boxes. The city of Santa Cruz decreed a civic strike that first rallied inhabitants in the central areas of that city and spread to the residential areas in La Paz and Cochabamba. But the terror, and then the terror broke out. Paramilitary bands began to besiege institutions, burn trade union headquarters, and set fire to the homes of candidates and leaders of the movement towards socialism (MAS), the ruling party. Even the president's private home was ransacked. In other places, families, including children, were kidnapped and threatened and flogged and with flogging and burning if, uh, for instance, their father, serving as a government minister or union leader, did not resign from his position. A long-anticipated night of the long knives was unleashed and fascism showed its face. When the popular forces mobilizing to resist the civil coup began to regain territorial control of the cities, as workers, miners, peasants, indigenous people, and the urban poor flooded into the streets, and the balance of forces began to tip in their favor, the police mutiny began. Over several weeks, the police had shown great incompetence and neglect of their duty to protect the ordinary people whom fascist gangs threatened with beatings and persecution. But since last Friday, refusing to recognize their civilian command, many of these same police have shown an extraordinary capacity for attacking, detaining, torturing, and killing protesters from the popular classes. Of course, in the early, earlier anti-Morales protests, it had been a matter of reining in the children of the middle classes, but the police were supposedly powerless to react. But now, 
that the task was to repress rebellious indios, the police arrogance and repressive fury reached monumental proportions. The same happened with the armed forces. Throughout the, our administration, we never allowed the repression of civilian demonstrations, not even during the first civic coup d'etat attempt in 2008. But after the elections, amid an enormous upheaval and without ask, us asking them anything, the police declared that they had no riot gear, that they had barely eight bullets per officer, and the presidential decree and that a presidential decree would be required for them to present the streets in a deterrent capacity. However, the security forces did not hesitate to demand and enforce Pres President Abel Morales' resignation, fracturing the constitutional order. The security forces tried their best to kidnap Morales when he headed toward the El, Chap El Chapare province to seek refuge, and even after he had arrived, and when the coup was consummated, the security forces took to the streets, shooting thousands of bullets, militarizing the cities, killing peasants. Of course, they did all this without any presidential decree. When asked to protect Indios, a decree was required. But when it came to repressing and killing Indios, obedience to racial, class racial and class hatred was sufficient. In just five days, there were already more than 18 dead. More than 120 people suffered gunshot wounds. Of course, all of them are indigenous. Um... Okay, this is the last part. Rising fascism. The question we must answer is why the traditional middle class inc incubated so much hatred and resentment toward the people, leading them to embrace a ra racialized fascism, targeting the Indio as an enemy. How did it infect the police and armed forces with its class frustrations, creating a social bias for fascistization, a basis for state regression and moral de degeneration? We are witnessing the rejection of equality. That is the rejection of the very foundations of a meaningful democracy. Over the past 14 years, the main characteristic of the government, based on the social movements, has been the process of social equalization. It has cut extreme poverty sharply from 38 to 15% of the population, expanded rights for all with universal access to health care, education, and social protection, and mounted an Indianization of the state. More than 50% of officials in the public administration have an indigenous identity, and there's a new national narrative formed around an indigenous base. It has also reduced economic inequalities, a decline in the income differential between the richest and poorest from 130 to 45. That is, the government presided over the systematic democratization of wealth and access to public goods, opportunities, and state power. During those 14 years, Bolivia's GDP grew from $9 billion to $42 billion, expanding the market and internal savings. This allowed many people to have their own home and improve their working conditions. In fact, in just one decade, the percentage of people in the so-called middle class, are, as measured by income, increased from 35 to 60% of the population. Most of this rise came from the popular and indigenous sectors. The democratization of social goods through the construction of material equality inevitably led to a rapid devaluation of the economic, educational, and political capital possessed by the traditional middle class. Previously, the traditional middle class's surnames, their monopoly over legitimate professional academic and political knowledge, and their family ties had allowed them to access positions in public administration, to credit, and to jobs and scholarships. However, today, the number of people fighting for the same positions or opportunities has doubled, reducing by half the possibilities for the old middle classes to access these goods. In addition to the Arabistas, or upstarts, in the new indigenous middle class of popular background have forms of social capital, indigenous languages, trade union links, that are in fact of greater value. 
not to mention state recognition of their status in the competition for available public goods. We thus face a collapse of what was characteristic of colonial societies, ethnicity as capital that is the imagined foundation of the middle class's historical superiority over subaltern classes. And here in Bolivia, social class is only comprehensible and visible in the form of racial hierarchies. The fact that the children of the old middle classes have been the shock troops of the reactionary insurgency is the violent cry of a new generation that sees that their inheritance, their surname, and their skin is diminishing in the face of the democratization of social goods. They may well have banners for democracy, which they understand narrowly as one election, but they have actually rebelled against democracy, understood as the equalization and distribution of wealth. This explains the overflowing of hatred, the outpouring of violence. Racial supremacy is not rational. It is lived as a prime physical impulse, like a tattoo preserving colonial history. Hence, fascism and racial hatred are not only consequences of a frustrated revolution. They are also, paradoxically, reactions against the achievement of material democratization in post-colonial societies. Therefore, it is not surprising that while the Indians grew 20 of their own excuse me, while the Indians gather 20 of their own shot dead in the streets, the coup's material and moral perpetrators claim that they have done so in order to safeguard democracy. In reality, they know what they are doing is protecting the privilege of their caste and their good names. Racial hatred can only destroy. It does not provide a future horizon. It is nothing more than primitive revenge carried out by a historically and morally decadent class, a revenge demonstrating that behind each mediocre liberal hides a committed coup supporter. Ouch. It's worth reading all this because you kind of get the, you can perceive the outlines of, I think, number one, what's really crucially important in there um, strategically is that the police were demanding a presidential decree to protect the indigenous people from the coup supporters. But then when the coup happened, the police rallied behind them lockstep with no presidential decree. Why? Uh, in the days since this has been published, Morales has accused the CIA of backing and collaborating with the, the coup supporters to engage in the coup. And so, like, I think it's really significant to understand that, like, Bolivia's, Bolivia as this major success story, um, like, sort of a, a, a South African apartheid type of scenario, although obviously the, the racial laws in South Africa were much more horrifying. Um, this worked out better for everyone, uh, basically. And it, and so you have, you still have all this like crazy. And when I say crazy, I mean, sort of like this seemingly futuristic, uh, unimaginable, political formations that happen in South Africa around racial racial violence. And I mean, the fact that like the, the Afrikaners are these white people who are so racist that English isn't a racist enough language. They need their own language <laughs> right. to be more racist um, in, in their own band, like D'Antwort or something. No comment. I, I can't, I don't, I don't know enough about their relationship to those no, situations, but joke, like, yeah. um, but like in South Africa, well, that's another story. But um, anyway, the point being that like in 10 years, Morales and, and Lanera and company turned the country around like uh, this kind of like crazy, you know, almost probably in some ways unprecedented is a post-colonial state um, turnaround. 
with indigenous control, you know, like there are other quote unquote success stories. Like I'm, I'm saying that darkly and cynically, like Vietnam is a capitalist success story after the U S destroyed the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ultimately lost the war anyway. Um, but like, uh, why did they, so anyway, why did they need a presidential decree to protect the indigenous people? Because that would have created, like Linera said, we never repressed opposition demonstrations. Um, had they uh, explicitly sent the police out after the coup supporters, that would have justified an invasion by the U.S., which is why it's probably backed by the CIA, because this is all staged in this very particular way. Um and so, like, it's a threat to the U.S. for this model to work anywhere, um, and which is, means it's a threat to capital, mm-hmm. global capital for this, because we're the policemen of the Western Hemisphere, which is why it's so interesting then that, like, this is a counterexample to the, like, everything Lanera is talking about is how to help indigenous people and how it actually did help indigenous mm-hmm. people, what they did, how socialism can work to overthrow colonial regimes, econ- colonial economic regimes. But how is, and that's, and so, but it's only if it's grounded in class struggle directly, mm-hmm. movement for socialism, the name of the party, what's happened in the, in the Anglo world in the U in North America, you know, Canada and the U S specifically since the dawn of neoliberalism, since the early seventies is identity politics has been weaponized against political opponents. And we're seeing the apogee of this in the democratic, uh, presidential field. So what I mean is like, we have the argument like like Joe was making on the podcast. Why isn't Tulsi the darling of the ID poll people? Well, because she challenges economic interests when she says we need to get out of we need to be we need to get out of regime change wars, or when she backs Bernie in the DNC or whatever. Um, but Kamala Harris works as an identity politics person because she wants to lock up poor and black mothers for having truant children or, um, you know, not prosecute Steve Mnuchin in San Francisco as DA when she could have. And it's really important to distinguish between like, and so I just want to slightly recap, like what happened on the left, what I think happened under the reign of neoliberalism, which is the left abandoned class struggle, feminism, black liberation, Latino liberation, um, all of these movements in the 50s and 60s, LGBTQ in 70s. Um, well, I'll get to that. That yeah. one's a little bit different, but I, I'll get to that in a second. But like these one, like just the, the pre and post 68 stuff. Sure. Everything was explicitly anti-capitalist. I'm not sure gay liberation was. Mm-hmm. So that's a different case study but that Mm. one has that one's even darker in terms of the regression politically but um and and this was this was known among everyone feminists black panthers you know um brown berets the the chicano liberation movement etc caesar chavez fred hampton huey newton um not gloria steinem who was a who was being paid by the cia but that's another story um 
but like honest feminists were knew that capitalism and patriarchy were indistinguishable. So like you can't fight capitalism or white supremacy unless you fight or you can't fight, sorry, racism and the patriarchy unless you're also fighting capitalism, which is why, you know, Fred Hampton, that famous quote that goes around Facebook about like, we don't, we don't fight uh, racism with black capitalism. We fight racism with socialism. Um, and the, so the retreat from class struggle on the American left, particularly the, the price that was paid for that move to culturalize politics was it, you don't just get to then go back to the, your safe university campus and humanities department and be left alone. You have to then become the water bearer. You have to become the handmaiden. You have to become the attack dog for capital against the working class. Well, what do I mean by that? Zizek has pointed out that a lot of the mo like present day feminist discourse is focused on things that are, are admittedly misogynistic, like um, domestic abuse and stuff like that. But he, he notes that there's a, a measure of cynicism there because who are the people who are using foul language and misogynistic wording and, and you know, hitting their wives are generally poor people. So what the the goal, the unstated, un, probably unconscious goal of people with otherwise perhaps good intentions is to fight off the working class, meaning keep the working class f so far away from what calls itself the left that they'll never consider overthrowing their own situation or cultivating a, a true sense of solidarity that could bridge links across, you know, um, social divides or whatever. And the, and, but why does capital need this attack dog? Because if you have g genuine upstart social movements, like a black lives matter, for example, or the me too movement, at some point you're going to encounter, you're going to come to a moment where you have to decide is capitalism the problem or not. And it was, you know, always understood even King who didn't, come out as a, directly as anti-capitalist initially, he came around to that. Um, Malcolm X did in his own way as well, like eventually you have to reckon with capitalism. And so you need this academic left to basically discipline, punish, and keep away, keep the left away from poor people as a possibility. And then that way you can then blame them for being ignorant and stupid and voting for Trump when Trump's the only one taking them seriously in that case of 2016. And so the, that's why, like Linera says, um, behind each mediocre liberal hides a committed coup supporter. What that means is you have Pete Buttigieg as the identity of the gay CIA agent who wants to overthrow the electoral college, but not give you Medicare for all. Um, and so like I want to I want to give an example of uh this is um leftist theorist Mackenzie Wark talking about how capital uh, capital doesn't matter anymore. And uh, I'm sorry. I all that add. Oh, go ahead. That is just I, real, I'll pause it. Just real quick that um it kind of sort of to put a a bow on that point is uh, the fact that I think amongst all the the candidates for president right now running in the, out of the Democratic field, the only one to actually come out in support of Morales and that whole 
situation of the indigenous people of Luma was, was Bernie. Right. right. So here's uh, Mackenzie Warwick. What if this isn't actually even capitalism anymore? It's something worse that superseded it. History moved on. All that is solid melts into air. All that is sacred is profane. One of the things that uh, the last 30 years has really accelerated is the commodification of information. And you could think about that as the absorbing of, of information as you know something we've really only had a concept of since the 40s. You could think of it as the absorbing of that information into the commodity form. And an example of that would be most people use Google or Bing or something like that. And it seems like you get this little bit of information for free, right? But if you get something for free, it basically means you're the product. Yeah, that's, you know, we've known this in media studies since the broadcast era. So how are you the product? And it's like, well, every little bit of information you get, you're giving all of this information in exchange for it that Google or Apple or whoever gets to own in the aggregate and instrumentalize over and against you. So to what extent is that a, a different model of exploitation based on information asymmetry? What if those who uh, produce information are not workers? I call them hackers, and it's a word that maybe uh, didn't date that well, so call it what you like. But let's think of different ways of describing what it means to be someone who produces information but doesn't own or control it. Because that's what most people I know do in a metropolitan city. Yeah, that's what most labor is that isn't maintenance and service work. So, well, then who ends up owning and controlling all that information? So I, I called that ruling class the vectorless class in the sense that it's ownership and control of the vector of information. It's storage, it's logistics, uh, it's brands, it's copyrights. Uh, you don't need to own the means of production anymore to be a ruling class. And that strikes me as really quite particular. So Apple Corporation doesn't make phones like it doesn't. You know, that's all made by outsourced to firms elsewhere. So what does it mean to be able to control through the vector the whole value chain? That seems to me to be the question to ask. You can hear even in the language the obfuscation happening. Mm -hmm. We don't have a working class, we have a hacker class. We don't have a ruling class, we have a vectorless class. A vectorless class? That The word is literally right. fucking nonsense. That's a word salad. Um, why is it word salad? Okay, her point is well taken. Um, if it's, it's true that Apple doesn't have Apple factories, mm -hmm. but... One might ask uh, the the dumbest possible question. Well, then why do they make them in China at all? Why do they deal with Foxconn, who has a horrific labor record? Even And even after Apple's gotten slammed in public for dealing with Foxconn, with the suicide nets and the, the crazy like Buddhist counselors to help people not kill themselves and keep working, why not just bring it back to the U.S.? It's been demonstrated that you could bring production back to the U.S. and it would only imp increase the, the base excuse me, the base cost of the hardware by $4, which is completely nominal if when you're selling a phone for $1,200 or $1,000 or even $400. Mm -hmm. Why do it? Because they have to keep control of the fucking labor markets. They have to keep control. They might not literally own the, the factories, but they have 
Apple has such a huge market share and sells so many fucking phones that obviously they can go to Foxconn and they can demand a certain price point and they have leverage power over them because Foxconn ceases to exist in the way that they do at the scale that they do unless Apple's buying all those phones. Mm -hmm. So that's fucking bullshit. She contradicts herself when she talks about all you need control of now is the information and the storage of that information. That is literally the fucking means of production of Google. Does Google not own server farms? Does Google not have warehouses full of servers that control the entire internet? Does Amazon Web Services not control hosting for most of the internet? If they if that didn't matter, they wouldn't need to fucking do that and they'd just run a website. Does Apple... Why is Amazon building a logistics chain? Why are they building drones? Why are they trying to... Why have they begun building their own version of UPS to deliver their packages. They wouldn't need um, vertical integration, i.e. buying every level of the supply chain out, if that didn't have value for them in terms of market share and power. If capital didn't matter, why does Goldman Sachs do what they do? Why do investment banks continue to, um, or private equity continue to, buy up and dismantle companies and rake fees and leave them in the dust. Why is, why has concentration of wealth exploded in the last decade relative to maybe all of human history prior, or at least since the French revolution, it's because capital, we are not out of fucking capital, but the fact that she's making this argument, that's only goal is to obfuscate the issue. Yes, I agree. Certainly. If you're like, She's actually wrong about, um, in material terms, what Google is at the level of she's saying, if you get something for free, you're the product. The That ignores the economic principle of zero marginal cost, which is the degree to which Google operates at. So like zero marginal cost just means like if you expand your user base, it doesn't cost you much to do that. So like it's been estimated in the past that the service Google provides in exchange for free search and raking your data is worth about $500 a year. So you would be paying whatever, like $50 a month for use of Google. I think it's probably in material terms, more like $300 a year now, maybe even 150. And if it's that low, we're talking about a $15 a month service to access all the world's information. We're at a point where people would actually probably pay that, but the data is worth much more than that. I agree with all that. I agree with the Yang point that we need a data bill of rights or whatever. But to say that there's only data, because the 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 placard on this video is the title of Mackenzie Wark's uh, new book called "Capital Is Dead." Is some is this is this something worse? Mm. Well, uh, the good news is no, it's not something worse because capital isn't fucking dead. If capital was dead, we wouldn't use it, and it wouldn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. If capital was dead, the repo market, the Fed wouldn't be pumping $250 billion into the repo markets every night to keep the illusion of the economy going. Like the, so this is, but the point is like what she's proposing is, is, is effectively sort of a wonky policy solution to real material cap, um, economic problems, class struggle. Mm-hmm. We don't need class struggle. We need this weird information warfare. Well, that doesn't fucking work. Why, you know, what, how come, well, I, that's just tangential to talk about hackers. I don't want to necessarily get into that, but like the, the simplest version of why this is a problem is what she is proposing is an alternative viewpoint is literally indistinguishable from Pete Buttigieg 
claiming that all we need is better policies and we need more entrepreneurs and this weird like pro gentrification thing while he's a CIA agent and a gay man is the same thing as like this supposed leftist Mackenzie Warwick claiming on leftist grounds that we don't need to talk about basically don't need to talk about capitalism anymore. What is the difference? They're both playing the same game. Mm -hmm. And so like the obviously in slightly different ways, but like that's that's the real danger. Like that's why someone like Linera is dangerous to the to the point of like overthrowing the Bolivian government from the USA's perspective. Why? Because Linera is just saying if you improve the lot of the working class, then literally like the gods of capital will come down and cr try and crush you. Okay. Well then capital must matter. Mm -hmm. We capital can't even afford. And this has been explicitly true since the nineties has been pointed out by Chomsky, you know, ad nauseum. Alan Greenspan explicitly said the way that you control the population is make them into precarious workforce, basically worried about their next meal. That's how you contain, um, maintain discipline over the population. Okay. That's an economic situation that we see at its sort of end point globally where now the the explosions of all these revolutions everywhere these are based on very mild market reforms or like austerity like i'm not saying they're good they're bad like raising fares on the fucking transit or whatever but like bolivia's government almost fell because they tried to increase the f subway fares um the riots in Iran, fuel. Yeah, over fuel prices. The the yellow vests in France were the <laughs> right, same thing. Right. Um, <clears throat> the uh, in the in Chile, similar like these sort of like these austerity reforms. That why are these so intolerable to, to the population mm -hmm. that they literally go put their lives on the line because people are already stressed to the breaking point mm -hmm. under this neoliberal regime. Um, if that's so, and if all that's true and it's materially happening for the reasons stated, Wark is just flat out lying. This is just false. What, our problem is not that we don't control our data. Our problem is that the, the substrate, the economic substrate upon which this data has come to sort of be the way we interact with the world in the West, in the, you know, metropolitan West mm -hmm. is, um, that sort of like superstructure, if you will, is, based on all this brutal economic exploitation that we don't have any control over and no ability to create an alternative to meaning the, as we've talked about on this show, all of this entrepreneurial bullshit is predicated on the idea that we have access to fucking capital. We do not. The number of small businesses that have started that start every year has halved since the seventies because people don't have access to capital. So no, I'm sorry. Capital's not dead. It's alive and well. <laughs> It's the idea, this, this fucking media studies, nineties bullshit. Like that's the part of the nineties that really needs to die. This idea that we're sort of beyond capital and it's all sort of like amorphous and that these obfuscations are somehow interesting. No, they're not. They're lie. They're lies that perpetuate the idea that we don't, we should just leave the economy to the experts. I mean, th this is like insane that like this is coming from a supposed communist. Mm -hmm. I'd only bring it around to a local example that we were talking about earlier, I think off air. So we didn't record last week in part because I was in Fargo, North Dakota to give a pitch to this interim uh, legislative committee called the Legacy Fund Committee. So the history and the context there is that North Dakota has a bunch of oil. And to its credit, the legislature, um, you know, instituted an excise or I'm sorry, an oil extraction tax on the corporations who are you know destroying 
our environment and the and the planet and the, the landscape here um, to put all that you know tax these companies for taking the oil out of the ground and put a bunch of it in a fund this legacy fund that we're going to use it's going to build up to you know billions of dollars and we'll do something big with it that sort of um, it benefits the entire state right so now it's 20 uh, 2019 and this this fund is at over it's between five and six billion dollars in growing. And so this committee of the legislature is trying to take proposals from the public on, hey, wh you know, what do you guys think, citizens? What should we do with all this money? And so there were a number of proposals that have been bandied about in committee meetings, in the newspaper, and so on. Um, and I went to, to, I guess, to this one committee meeting last week to pitch this notion of like some sort of single-payer Medicare for All for North Dakota with this fund. Now, obviously... Support Bernie, support the Medicare for all at the federal level, but let's just let's just say that doesn't happen. Maybe we could do something at the state level is what I'm trying to get them to think about. Um, and so, and there were a number of other pitches too, including let's get rid of all the lunch debt for all the kids. Let's um, put this money toward tourism. Let's put this money toward research and development at the university level for the major research universities and so on. And, um, or let's, you know, let's do the ALEC thing, A-L-E-C, and just cut all the state income taxes and give the money out to the people, sort of Alaska style, like our friend Joe gets. Um, and the, you know, a lot of those, I guess the more progressive proposals at this committee meeting were getting applause and people were celebrating and excited about the lunch proposal, for example. The one of, the giving everybody in North Dakota healthcare one didn't, track in the way I expected it would, at least in that environment. Now, it wasn't dismissed. Some people liked it a lot, um, but not at the committee level. And so what I'm just, I'm sort of reinforcing your point by saying something like a Medicare for all or a state level single payer is like explicitly anti-capitalist. And as such, not even the left is willing to get behind it in this state in sort of full-throated ways. And that's interesting to me. And it's obviously... Uh, problematic and it speaks to the again the ways in which if you propose something that is a direct threat to capital which still matters i agree with you um you're going to be met with crickets even often amongst people on the left and again we have this legacy fund example as part of that uh, we'll see how it unfolds but i don't know there didn't seem to be again even among uh, people on the left like interest in following through on that right so. yeah it's um which just speaks to my point about like how the the purpose of of identity politics is well, I didn't mention this, but th like th to this example, like um, part of the function is to moralize politics. And as Zizek says, anytime you're appealing to morality in politics is because you basically don't have an alternate, like you don't have a real argument. So it's more palatable for people when they hear things like um, we should feed kids at school and not well it's okay here's the paradox uh, we should we shouldn't be punishing children for not being able to afford to eat and we should just fund finance school lunches which was perhaps you pointed out that's a minute fraction of what you could do that really easily and should be done mm -hmm. but when it comes to medicare for all nobody wants to talk nobody wants to touch it because they're either afraid as you suggest or uh, because like it, it sort of does not register at that level. The paradox is who is responsible for free lunch in schools? The Black Panther Party, <laughs> right? So the anti the fucking Marxists are responsible for even the idea of this. Yet it's it seems attainable 
and it seems easy and it seems safe. And so that's why they focus on that, even though the bigger problem is like, this is where I, like, I see things like, um, like, like sometimes identity politics gets reduced to these very minute kind of almost academic conversations about like rights and shit. Not that those things aren't important legally, but like the, you know, even, I mean, take, take something like controversial at any level, like police shootings. Okay. Or mass shootings. Police shootings is a different question. Mass shootings are horrifying. And like we should do everything we can to prevent them in like, you know, full stop. They've, I think they've number one, all the death, the entire death toll of every mass shooting in America basically doesn't cover one year of police shootings in America. That's so that's completely off the table. We can't talk about that. All we can talk about is what appeals to the white supremacist mindset, meaning, and I don't mean people literally walking around being white supremacists. I mean, the idea like what penetrates in people's minds. Kids go to school and they get shot at. Some of those kids are white or maybe most of them. What I'm saying is like that appeals to the white supremacist mindset. And as a result, then people have to literally start cities on fire to talk about like black kids getting executed in the streets. Um, but and so there's that that's its own hypocrisy right there. But like if you extrapolate it out, what is what is all the school shooting deaths compared to one year of people dying from lack of health care? It's like literally it's probably like 200 to one, like 50,000 people die from lack, lack of access to health care in the U.S. every year. And, you know, it's probably like whatever, two, three hundred, maybe four hundred uh, die in school shootings. Again, I'm not saying these mass shootings should be ignored. I'm saying the scale of the problem is insane by comparison, but it's off the it's a blank spot on the map because we're talking about changing something structurally. So but that is the identity politics thing, because I think like ultimately we should extend the identity politics argument in terms of um, I think it's become almost beyond just like certain marginalized identities and advocating for those people. I think it's become people are so like under the yoke of neoliberal subjectivity that their identity, their individuality is all that matters. Meaning I feel bad when I see this thing that fits into my worldview. That's my political position. And that is a complete obfuscation. That is a complete nightmare. Um, we're all going to literally die in a fucking fire. If that, if that continues to win, it's not winning. Exactly. Like, I think like, and this is why, why is someone like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn such a problem? Because, Sanders is saying, absolutely, identity politics all the way. The best way to help women and children and poor black and brown people is to give them fucking free health care. The, the system does not, cannot stomach this sort of talk because it will undermine, the again, the capitalist you know, base of the economy, which is all the power wielded by lobbyists and money in politics to keep the, the machine going and all these profits flowing. And so like somebody like Sanders or Corbyn, 
who did not exist in, in a serious way pre 2015, um, those that voice on the left is 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 at odds in the Democratic Party with the identity politics like camp or whatever. And so that's telling of what the purpose of the identity politics camp serves ideologically and uh, structurally. And so, like, if that's the case, then we need to, you know, and well, we've talked about it before, but like, obviously, this. The identity politics argument is always cynical if your candidate is Joe Biden. Like, mm-hmm. if Tulsi Gabbard doesn't fit and Pete Buttigieg does, then obviously it's bullshit. Um, because even on its face, it doesn't work. And so, like, if we're to overcome this deadlock, we need to be willing to side with the class struggle, as we sh- obviously always have. But that, as as such, like... We should not be seduced by these moralistic feel-gooderies as masquerading as political interventions when the more serious political intervention is, you know, in the case of Medicare for All, something that will save tens of thousands of lives every year.